We've been studying this quarter the book of Revelation, and we find ourselves finally at the very end of the the book of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22. As we've seen, the book of Revelation, as it opens, is a revelation of Jesus Christ, and it's a book written about things from the time of John that were still to come. And from John's perspective, it begins in his time, and it goes all the way to the coming of Jesus and beyond. And We've seen the history of the church recounted in various symbolic ways. We've seen the times of difficulty and persecution. We've seen the last warning message given to God's world in the three angels' messages. And then last time we saw the destruction of Satan and the wicked. And now we come to Revelations chapter 21 and 22. And as was so well read in verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Today, the burden of our study will not be exhaustive on Revelation 21 and 22, but as an introduction to our service of recommitment at the Ordinance of Humility and the Communion Supper. I would hope and pray that we would see in our study today a call to recommit to Jesus Christ and an understanding that He indeed is coming very soon. But before we begin our study, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank You so much again for a Sabbath day, and for so graciously allowing us to come into your house on your day. And now as we study your word, we ask for your spirit to guide our minds and our understanding and to make application in our lives as we seek to become more like you every day, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Oftentimes when one studies Revelation 21 or 22 or hears a presentation on these last two chapters of Scripture, it is noted accurately so that The last two chapters of the Bible, because these are, of course, not just the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. They're the very last chapters in all of Scripture. The last two chapters of the book of Revelation bookend very nicely with the first two chapters of the very first book of the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2 find their mirror image in Revelation 21 and 22. If you recall, in the beginning, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he goes on to outline in that first chapter how the Lord made them and what sequence and order he made everything and each time he would make something he would come back and say it was good it was good in fact by the end of the creation week on the end of day six he said it was very good and then the lord rested on the seventh day the sabbath and hallowed it and in revelation chapter 21 we see verse one now i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away and of course everything that goes in between those bookends starting from Genesis chapter 3, is the sin problem. It's development in our time and in the history of the world and in Christ's sacrifice to redeem us from that curse of sin and to restore us to that original Eden ideal. Basically, you have in Scripture the establishment of the Eden and then the Eden restored at the end of Scripture. Of course, Colossians chapter 1, if you would turn there briefly with us, you can see that this has been the plan of God all along. Colossians chapter 1, right there in that little packet of books by the Apostle Paul, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians chapter 1. We read in verse 19 and 20 what it was the will of God that this very reconciliation would occur. So it says in verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in Him, that is Jesus Christ, all the fullness should dwell. And by him to, what's that word? Reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through what? 
the blood of his cross. So basically what you have here is the be- heaven and earth were an ideal situation, and they were going to be restored to that ideal situation, and the thing that makes it happen is the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus, which of course is a theme throughout the book of Revelation. It speaks of Jesus as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The redemption and the restoration, this reconciliation that is so confidently spoken of is only done through the blood of Jesus Christ. So we go back to Revelation chapter 21, and we take just a brief look at what's being offered. In Revelation chapter 21, much like Revelation chapter 1 talks about kind of the nuts and bolts and the physical order of creation, here we have in Revelation chapter 21 the nuts and bolts of the new heavens and the new earth, specifically the kingdom of God itself. And it goes on um, to describe this new Jerusalem. We'll start in verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Okay. Now, if you want to put your finger, interestingly enough, right there and go back to Revelation chapter 17, you'll see a parallel. It seems very similar. Revelation chapter 17 in the destruction of the counterfeit city then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me saying to me come i will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters so he was shown the judgment of the counterfeit the great harlot and her kingdom babylon and now in revelation chapter 21 the invitation from the same individual is given now come i will show you again verse 9 of revelation chapter 21 the bride the lamb's wife and what is he shown in verse 10 And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, her light was like a a precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And then it goes on to give the dimensions of the city, and it talks about the glories that will be therein. And oftentimes when we talk about the, the coming of Jesus and our going to heaven to be with him, our focus is on some of the physical aspects that we're going to enjoy. Streets of gold. I personally want to swim with a dolphin. I'll be honest with you. I would like that. I've never done it. Okay? I would like to, I'd like to fly and visit other planets. I'd like to have the freedom that provides. I'd like to have the peace and the safety and the, and the no more tears. And I'd love to have, the, have the, the physical environs that are there described. So parallel Genesis chapter 1. It's Eden restored. It's a beautiful place. And, but as you see the end of chapter 21... It goes on after it describes the city like pure gold in verse 21, like transparent glass. Then it goes into verse 22. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Obviously, the centerpiece of the kingdom is not the kingdom itself, but the king of the kingdom. The city had no need of the sun, verse 23, or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Again, the focus, it's so easy to get focused on the kingdom that you lose sight of the king. But in our presentation of the gospel message, friends, we cannot just simply hold out heaven as a great place to be, though I'm sure it will be a very fine place. I'm sure it will be a wonderful climate. I'm sure there will be no light. I'm I'm so glad of the streets of gold. But the reason we want the kingdom is for the king. And it says it right there that the lamb is its light. Then we go on to chapter 22, and you notice that through chapter 22, again, after it describes some of the more 
some of the features of the city, the water of life, the, the tree of life, the fruit that is there for the healing of nations. It goes on to say in verse 7, and you'll notice this repeated theme in the very last chapter of the very last book of Scripture. Behold, I am coming, what's that word? Quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Then skip down to verse 12. What do we find again? And behold, I am what? Coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. Then skip down to verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. You see, the last repeated promise of not just the book of Revelation, but the Bible itself is the soon coming, the quick coming of Jesus Christ. And as Christians, we look forward to that, but it is difficult, if we can just be honest, to proclaim the quick coming of Jesus 2,000 years after it was written. That is some kind of quick that if I were employed, my boss would not necessarily agree with my uh, representation of things. I got there quick, 2,000 years late, from people's perspective. In fact, this was an anticipated question. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3. Notice this now. 2 Peter chapter 3. Apparently in the last days, we should expect this question to be asked. People are saying, okay, Jesus said he was coming. Where is he? 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 3, Scripture tells us, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3, knowing this first, that scoffers will come when? In the last days, which I believe we're living in the last days. We go through the history of the church. We're not living in those earlier churches. We're living right there at the time of the coming of Christ, after the time of persecution, after the beginning of the judgment, just before Jesus appears. We're living in the last days, and apparently in those last days, scoffers will come walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of what is coming? Where is this promise? I'm coming quickly, I'm coming quickly, and these are the last days, and we see no Jesus yet. But look at the response. Skip down to verse 8. 2 Peter 3 and verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing. And if I could pause for a second. If the Bible ever tells you to not forget something, what should we do? Not forget it. Similarly, if the Bible says, remember something, what should we do? Remember, right? And it says, brothers, do not, when you're answering this question, when people are confronting you, scoffing you with this concept that you say Jesus is coming, yet we don't see him, remember this. Do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years are as one day. The Lord is not slack, or some versions say slow, concerning his what? His promise. He's not slow, or at least not the way we would think of slow. Right? Notice what it says. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. Now again, if I were late to work by, say, 20 minutes, or I don't know, 2,000 years, my boss would start inferring things about my motive for being late. You know, when someone's late, you, you think, oh, it's just a minute or two, not a big deal. If it's 10 minutes, I'm not sure what it is. If it's 20 minutes, hmm, 30 minutes, maybe the meeting's off. 40 minutes, I'm going home, right? At a certain point, you start chipping away and saying, this must mean this. 
And when we are late to something, we're slow to something, or peers slack, we start assigning motive to that. Maybe they just forgot. Maybe they just don't care. Maybe, you know, we start assigning motive to why would they be late. Maybe they're just lazy. Maybe they're lazy, maybe they're forgetful, maybe they don't care, but is this the reason Christ has not returned? That he's lazy? Just doesn't feel like it? Or that he doesn't care? Surely not. Why the parent delay when the Bible says he's coming quickly? That's the question they want answered. And look at the, quest, look at the res- resolution here. Again in verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning a promise, as some count slackness, but is, what's that next word? Long-suffering, patient towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And part of me says, praise the Lord for a God who takes his time to win as many as possible. Praise the Lord for a God who's not in a rush, who's not in a hurry, who cares enough to be long-suffering, cares enough to be patient. But on the other end of that spectrum, then I start thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. How long is he going to last? Will he just forever hold out those doors of probation and the end won't ever actually come? Well, it appears that the anticipation of that question is why the next verse is written. Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So notice there's patience, there's long-suffering, there's mercy, but there is a day coming when it will be up. So with that concept in our mind, Christ wants to come quickly, but he's long-suffering and patience towards us, so we're living on this probationary borrowed time, what should our attitude be? What should our question be in our mind? How should we think? Verse 11, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, here's the question, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? The question we're asking is, given this Quickness, we know that Jesus is coming. We know where we are in the prophetic sequence. We know that the very next thing to happen is the close of probation and the last seven last plagues and the coming of Christ to follow. Knowing where we are in the prophetic history, the question we should be asking, apparently according to Scripture, is what manner of persons are we being in holy conduct and godliness? As we, verse 12 says, looking for, and what is that next word? Hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved on being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Looking for and hastening. Is it possible that God desires quick to be quicker? And it says here that what he's waiting for is for the, the beast from the sea to be worse. Is that what it says here? Of course not. Trust me, Satan is going to play his role in end-time events. We see it all around us, folks. I believe the Revelation chapter 13 and some of the prophetic images that are portrayed in Scripture symbolically, we're seeing manifest in real life in our time today. I believe that we're seeing end-time events come around. Satan is doing his part. The question is, are we asking the question, are we being the people we ought to be? That's the question of Scripture here. Looking for and hastening coming of the day of God. 
Go back over to John chapter 14. It, this is, seems a reasonable time to bring up this point. John chapter 14. Some of the most treasured passages in Scripture. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Countless thousands, if not millions, have been comforted by these very words where Jesus said to his disciples, and he says to us today, John chapter 14 and verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to what? Prepare a place for you. Boy, that's good news, isn't it? That Jesus has gone to make a way for us to be in those mansions, to prepare a place for us, to get us to heaven. If I go to prepare a place for you, he says, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And we love the promise of Jesus preparing a place for us. But friends, apparently this time on earth's history is for us to let him prepare us for that place. Just as much as Christ has gone to prepare a place for us, he wants to do a work in us to prepare us for that place. And this is the purpose of our communion service. Christ has made provision for everyone in the world if they so choose to get into heaven. But the question is, do we want to fit into his kingdom? We love the fact that he's going to prepare a place for us, but are we so in love with the fact that he wants to prepare us now for that place then? You know, I think about, there's a paradox in Scripture that's a little bit troubling. Uh, As we close, I want to show you these three passages. Let me go back to Exodus chapter 33, if you would. Go to Exodus 33. As we ponder what it would be like to get ready to see Jesus face to face at his coming, which I believe is soon and very soon, Exodus chapter 33, Moses desired to see Jesus face to face. Exodus chapter 33 and verse 18 records, of course, so you understand the context here, he's had, this is a very rough time in Moses' experience. This is right after Exodus chapter 32 with the golden calf incident, and he's discouraged. Now he's got to lead these people, and he said, Lord, I want you to be with me, and he's wrestling with the Lord. And then he has this request in verse 18, Exodus 33, 18, and he says, please show me what? Your glory. Show me your glory. And the response of the Lord in verse 19, then he said, I will make all of my, what's that word? Goodness. Pass before. Of course, the glory of God is his goodness. It's who he is. It's his character. It's his very person. I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said in verse 20, you cannot see what? My face. For no man shall see me and live. It's kind of like the proposition, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you, right? Is that I can show you, but you'd have to die, right? The revealing of my raw, unfiltered glory just breaking through, would eviscerate you. I'll show you who I am in my character, my goodness, my caring, my long-suffering, my patience, but to see me face to face, you can't do it. No man shall see me and live. Exodus 33, the Lord God, the same God who declares you shall not see my face and live. Then we go over to the other end of Scripture in Revelation chapter 22. 
what I call the 3322 paradox. The same God who in Exodus 33 says, No man shall see my face and live. Then in Revelation chapter 22, verses 3 and 4 declares of those who will be in his kingdom, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Verse 4, they shall see, what? His face. And his name shall be on their foreheads. The implication of that statement is they shall see his face and live. Mm. Again, I've mentioned this before, but there are plenty of people who are going to live to the second coming, but I don't want to merely live to the second coming. I want to live through the second coming. To see the face of God, sure, for an instant, but I don't want just an instant and die. I want to see him and live. How is it possible? How is it possible to have that kind of confidence that when Jesus comes, we won't be crawling, crying for the rocks and mountains to hide us, but we say, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. What makes that difference? The same author of Revelation, earlier in his epistle in 1 John chapter 2, gives us, I believe, the resolution to the 3322 paradox. The same God who says, you cannot see my face and live, and then says, you'll see my face. I don't know whether that's a promise or a curse. And it all depends, because you know some will see his face and die, and some will see his face and live. What makes the difference? 1 John, chapter 2. Now, I don't want to say that any part of Scripture is better than another. Of course not. And I certainly shy away from having favorites, but I tell you, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28 is really, really good. Okay? Notice what it says here. Think of this counsel as we prepare our minds for the ordinance of humility and the service we're going to be performing today. And now, little children, here's the key, abide where? In Him. Abide means to Live, to stay there, to dwell. That's your home. Abide in him. And notice it doesn't say, it's the implication is abide in him now. Abide in him that when he appears, a reference to the second coming, yes? We may have, what's that word? Confidence. And not be ashamed before him at his coming. What a tragedy it would be to study the book of Revelation, to outline Bible prophecy, looking from Daniel to Revelation and step by step and bring us all the way and see right where we're living and get ready to see the face of Jesus and actually not be ready to see the face of Jesus. We need, we need an understanding. We need an intelligent faith. We need to understand Bible prophecy. We need to know where we are on the prophetic record. We need to see the nearness and the signs all around us. But more than that, we need a preparation to see the face of Jesus. And friends, that's what this service is all about. This service is there to prepare our hearts to recommit ourselves to abiding in him so that when he comes, and again, I believe that day is soon, that we may have confidence 
and not be ashamed before him at his coming. That's the desire of my heart. It's my desire of my heart for you. And according to Scripture, it's the desire of the Lord for us that not one should be lost, but that everyone should come to repentance. That's what we're waiting for. That's what Christ longs to see in his people, is his character reflected, so that the people who go by his name will actually represent that name and be heavenly so he can take them home and not be ashamed. In preparation for the emblems of our communion service, in the Seventh Adventist Church, we take seriously the command of Christ to wash one another's feet, as we find in John chapter 13, when he told his disciples, though you've been washed, you still need to have a bath, you need to wash another's feet. And we understand that this is simply a recommitment to Christ and a humbling before him, but I would beg of you, I beseech of you, I plead with you, don't let it become a round of hollow service that you go through, whitewashed sepulchers just going through the motions. Let us have that question on our hearts today. Lord, what kind of people ought we to be? And if there's something between us and our Savior today, let's lay that aside, let it be washed away and come to him clean. And as we partake of the emblems that follow, we can have confidence and that we've given everything to Jesus. And by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony, we too can overcome and be ready to see him when he comes. At this time, we're going to dismiss to partake in those ordinances. The first, the ordinance of humility, the foot washing, and then we'll reassemble here for the distribution and partaking of the emblems of Christ's body and his blood. Ladies are going to be meeting over in this side area in this room here. Gentlemen, you'll be across the parking lot in the gymnasium. And then we'll reconvene reverently, prayerfully, as we partake of the emblems of the blood of Christ. But as we dismiss, let's do so with prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, Lord, for Jesus. I thank you for Jesus being our creator, for without him we would not have even this first life. But, Lord, most importantly, for our purposes today, I thank you for Jesus being our redeeming, sacrificial Savior. Thank you for having a book of life and being willing to write our names in it. Lord, thank you for promising to prepare a place for us. But now, Lord, as we turn our attention to these emblems, Lord, we ask that you would prepare us for that place. Let us be ready to see Jesus soon and very soon is our prayer in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.